Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes a young professional early in their career talking to an expert for academic and industry insights. At some point, we turn the tables around, where the expert asks the young professional about their agonies, dreams and aspirations about their field. In today's podcast, we're honored to have Dr. Dimitris Agrafiotis, Vice President of Digital for Worldwide Research Development and Medical at Pfizer. And the young professional is Eleftheria Ledakis, Commercialization Manager at Queen Mary Innovation. Thank you so much, Dr. Agrafiotis. It's amazing to have you on today's podcast. You started off your education with a bachelor's degree in chemistry from University of Patras in Greece before moving on to do a PhD at Imperial College and postdoctoral fellowships at UC Berkeley and Harvard, all in theoretical and computational chemistry. Looking back, what was your driving motivation and what would you say were your key qualities that brought you here? Um, First of all, I would like to thank you and Leferia for inviting me to share my thoughts with you and your your listeners today. Um, To be honest, I'm not sure if it was motivation more so than influence uh, or rather a series of influences by many people at many formative moments uh, throughout my life. Um, I think that underneath it all, um, I've always had a deep respect for education. It was instilled in me from a very early age as I come from a family of educators. Um, my, old, my oldest brother also played a big role. Uh, he was an outstanding student and my role model for um, as I was growing up. Uh, and not just for his uh, academic performance, but also his uh, sheer breadth of interest. Um, so it was mainly, actually, it was mainly his in, uh, influence that led me to pursue graduate school, following on his footsteps. Um, and that was probably the most consequential decision in terms of shaping my career. Uh, as for the subject, I chose theoretical chemistry, theoretical organic chemistry, uh, because I liked organic chemistry and also quantitative subjects. I actually had a great undergraduate mentor, um, uh, Professor Papayano, Sakis Papayano, uh, who encouraged me to go to Imperial College where he had done his own PhD and had recommended my future PhD advisor, Henry Zeppa, because he was an up-and-coming uh, faculty member during his time there, uh, and who, I must say, turned out to be an uh, equally great mentor himself. Um, another major turning point was coming to the U.S. for my postdoctoral training, um, uh, first at Berkeley and then at Harvard, as you mentioned. Uh, that, that experience was transformative for two reasons. Um, the first was just the caliber of the faculty and the students in these places, which shaped, um, rather solidified uh, my own goals and aspirations, uh, my expectations of myself, my, my own definition of effort and accomplishment. Uh, but it was, really, it was really my experience at Harvard and Professor Vijay group that took my career on a completely different trajectory. Uh, it was there where I started working on AI and fell in love with the art and science of computer programming. Not, not mathematical programming, which was always part of my sort of quantum chemical training, um, but data structures and algorithms. Now, as for the qualities that brought me here, I would say perseverance, optimism, and a lot of hard work. Um, and let's be honest, uh, the fear of failure as well, uh, which I think is common to most people who have been through um, intense competitive environments, whether whether they care to admit it or not. Uh, but actually, it's a strange coincidence that you're asking me this question today, uh, Eleftheria, 
because this morning through my Facebook feeds, I was reminded um, that uh, it, was, it was on this day 40 years ago uh, that I was graduating from high school. Um, and who would have imagined back then where life would, would, would take us and how important and long-lasting, actually, those childhood friendships would turn out to be. I know you joined Pfizer just recently, but one of the new initiatives you seem to be involved in is the new digital hub in Thessaloniki. What is the purpose of this new hub and how do you think it will benefit the community, new hired employees and digital innovation in Greece? Um, oh, that could be a long discussion. The digital hub in Thessaloniki is a, is a strategic investment for Pfizer. I cannot emphasize this uh, enough. Um, and I also believe it represents a remarkable opportunity for Greece as, as she tries to rise from the ashes of the financial and the COVID crisis, one back to back. Um, these are important, well-paying, high-tech jobs, but, you know, allow me to say at an iconic firm that is literally saving the world today. Now, I'm new to Pfizer myself. I joined two and a half years, uh, two and a half months ago. Uh, but I can tell you, based on all my conversations so far, people have been very, very impressed with the caliber of the people that we found in Greece and Thessaloniki specifically. Uh, we have already hired more than uh, 240 associates in the first year, in the last 12 months, and plan to hire many more in the, in the months and years to come. Now, you know, Greek scientists have an exceptional reputation abroad, uh, but I don't think people know what kind of an environment produces and nurtures this talent. Um, and quite, quite frankly, I, I can't think of a better area for Greece to invest in than digital and AI information technology. Um, why? Because it requires very low levels of capital investment, a good network, a laptop, you've done. Uh, and taps into our most precious national resource, which is our people. Uh, so, so for those of you who are struggling to, you know, trying to envision a better future, I would remind you of Winston Churchill's um, quote, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. Um, I don't think we should let this opportunity slip away. I'm sure that a number of young professionals would be interested to take part of that hub. And uh, part of our audience are young professionals that would be interested in developing a career in the biopharmaceutical industry. Is This is something that is found challenging and competitive, especially if one is looking to transition into it from an academic environment. What would you think are the skills needed for this professional shift? What would you advise a candidate? And what would you personally be looking into a candidate? Um, it's not as challenging as people think. Uh, most people transition quite well, at least in my experience. The real difference and the advice I would give to anyone who's interested in this career path is that success in the industry is much, is much more about the team than it is about you. Uh, it takes some 10,000 people to bring a new drug to the market, and every one of them, every single one of them, contributes in their own unique way. Um, so you just need to understand that you're just a small part of, of the solution. Um, stay humble and respect and recognize everyone's contributions, big and small. Uh, as for the qualities that I look for in a candidate, um, I'd summarize this talent and character. I look for people who are intelligent creative and really skilled in their art. They really know their stuff in depth and have a, have a passion for what they do. You know, as we say in Greece, Meraki, um, who carry themselves with integrity um, and care about other people around them. They, they, they take pride and joy in other people's success uh, as much as in their own. And they stand for something bigger than themselves. I also look for diverse backgrounds and, frankly, personalities um, who can complement each other on a team. 
which which actually um, Eleftheria brings me to the concept of aristia, or uh, for those who are not as fluent in Greek, excellence. Now, I believe that aristia should be a personal aspiration for self-improvement, not a license for arrogance. Um, you know, the more we inhale in our own accomplishments, the more the more we believe that our success is our own doing, the less likely we are to feel grateful to, and and, and of course obligated to our fellow citizens. Uh, and I think that can lead to great disparities and tear the social fabric that keeps us all together. Um, uh, you know, there's a quote that is probably misattributed to Aristotle because it's not consistent with his, <laughs> with his teachings. So that says that um, you know, educating the mind without educating the heart is not is no education at all. You have spent a significant part of your career leading data science and information. Actually, yeah. can I ask you a question? Can yes. I stop you, Lefteria? Of course. Um, uh, let, me, let, me ask, let me ask this question to you. Um, how do you define Aristia? Um, do you believe in meritocracy? Uh, you know, so the rewards of life, whether it's an admission to the university, employment, money, power, call it whatever you want. Should those be distributed based on skill and effort alone? Well, that is actually a really good question and uh, I have spent a lot of time having this conversation with friends and colleagues. My personal view for Aristia would be that um, it is actually discovering our better self, even if this is not recognized by societal norms. Discovering what drives us to surpass our daily hurdles, both personal and professional, and build a team that can address unsolved daily societal and health challenges of the humankind. I find that Aristia can be someone creating a not-for-profit organization, providing food and shelter to people in need in a developing country when they, when they suffer economically themselves, as well as a chief executive officer of a large pharmaceutical company that manages teams of hundreds of employees with the goal to bring a new COVID-19 vaccine to the, into the market and save lives, for example. Both are equally important and equally impactful. Very well said, Elephant. And in terms of your career, I have seen that you have seen uh, you have spent significant part of your career leading data science and information technology organizations in leading pharmaceutical companies such as J&J and Novartis, both in drug discovery and clinical development. And you have built a wide range of novel computational methodologies and informatic systems like di direct diversity, ABCD and Accelerate. You have actually left a mark in this space. How would you think? Uh, is it easy to innovate? What is needed to achieve it? Um, well, uh, 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 I'd respond at two levels. At, at the individual level, I think true innovation requires an observer and an inquisitive mind. Uh, some kind of intellectual restlessness, you know, an innate um, uh, uh, dissatisfaction with the status quo. But it also requires a sharp focus uh, on implementation, the desire and the ability to reduce your ideas to practice, see them through, and actually realize the practical benefits. Innovation is very different than invention. Um, at an enterprise level, uh, innovation requires first and foremost a strong business incentive. Uh, in pharmaceutical R&D, innovation comes very naturally. Uh, you know, it's research and development. Um, but 
not necessarily in every field. Um, you have finite resources and you need to deploy them in the areas that will have the greatest impact on your strategy, your, your core business, your core products and services. Now, you mentioned Directed Diversity, Visit and Accelerate. Uh, each of them was actually created at a unique point in time under unique circumstances and with a unique uh, with, with unique business incentives. Uh, the first direct diversity was a, you know, a key differentiator for a biotech startup that was specifically going after a new problem that could not be solved with conventional methods. Like in that case, we were manipulating and mining um, you know, massive, massive virtual combinatorial libraries consisting of trillions of molecules. Now, the second ABCD was born out of necessity. You know, the, the fact that Gen-Z scientists just didn't have easy access to their data and to the research data. But also because of the fortuitous availability of a very talented team and a very powerful code base, both of which came for free, quote unquote, uh, through JJ's acquisition of my previous biotech company. As for the third one, Accelerate, it was born out of Commons's desire to monetize their data and create a new standalone revenue stream. So three very different motives. Uh, th the challenge is what innovation to source from the outside and what to develop in-house. Uh, you can't afford to reinvent anything, everything, right, in a single company, uh, even if you think you can do it better. Uh, but you do need to invent something, otherwise you are, by definition, a follower. Um, uh, you know, in my space, name one company that's considered a digital leader that doesn't have formidable software engineering or data science talent in its ranks. And I think that's how you win the race in digital. In the end, it all comes down to talent. What are the challenges that your field is experienced and you have identified? Uh, hmm, many, um, I, uh, but, but I think the biggest challenge is hype um, and the low, uh, low signal to noise ratio. I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, AI is often positioned as a panacea, as the solution to every problem, not as yet another technology that people can harness to solve the problems. Uh, and some problems are really, really hard, um, particularly when it comes to understanding human biology and disease. Um, and, and this hype, Eleftheria, has created a very fertile ground for, if you can pardon my expression, snake oil salesmen, you know, people who profess expertise in this field, but lack even the most basic, the most rudimentary understanding of it. Almost everything that involves a computer model of some sort, or even plain automation, is branded as AI these days. Uh, so it's very difficult for the non-expert to figure out what's real. Um, the signal is lost in a notion of noise. Uh, another challenge that is particularly acute in the life sciences is access to clean, well-organized, and well-curated data. That's an area that we, uh, we're still struggling with, uh, quite frankly. And it's a source of constant frustration to the practitioners of my field. Uh, most of our time is spent on data wrangling rather than the actual analysis itself. Uh, but 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 I do believe we'll see, uh, we'll continue to see astounding progress in the years to come. Well, these are real challenges. And if you if we think of the pandemic, there have been challenges when clinical trials have been run in such a short time. And uh, there have actually been numerous clinical trials that failed due to inefficient or ineffective collection, use and interpretation of clinical trial data. What is your view on this? Do you think that artificial intelligence can help and is actually the way forward? Um, that's a great question. Uh, there are many reasons why clinical trials fail to produce the expected outcomes. Uh, as I said before, uh, I believe the majority of these failures are due to the inherent complexity of human biology and disease. Uh, you know, the translational limitations of preclinical models are inability to accurately predict 
the response to therapy of patients who differ very widely um, in their genotypic makeup, their disease state, and other similar factors. But it's also true that some of these failures are self-inflicted, you know, poorly designed protocols, um, maybe questionable clinical endpoints, misguided or arbitrary eligibility criteria that adversely impact patient recruitment, just poor operational execution. There's a long list of those factors. Uh, I do believe that uh, uh, more intelligent use of historical data and AI can mitigate most, if not all, of these risks, but cannot completely eliminate. Um, as I said before, AI is a tool, in many cases an immensely powerful tool, but it's not a panacea. So in, in my, um, it's my personal view that the impact of AI will be more noticeable, more felt in operational aspects of clinical study conduct, uh, which are fraught with waste and inefficiency. It's not just AI, but just digital technologies in general, which enable the automation of unnecessary manual processes that are, you know, very prevalent in drug development. Um, um, the, I think the time for this digital disruption has come, uh, but in our industry, change doesn't come easy, because it's very heavily regulated, and we have a lot of traditional processes that are deeply ingrained in people's minds over many decades, frankly. Uh, so the question is not if, but how soon. Um, I, I do believe, though, that the pace will pick up considerably after this COVID pandemic, because uh, it has really forced us to think and act in very new, new ways, very different ways. Reflecting exactly on your experience of the pandemic and the development of COVID-19 vaccines and drugs, where an enormous amount of funding and effort has been spent, what would you say to the part of the population that doubts this research and clinical data that has been generated? Well, I would deal this every day, don't we, all of us? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid I don't have any answer to your question, and here's why. Uh, for he- you know, for years, the scientific and medical community has treated vaccine skepticism as an information problem. You know, our thinking was that if people just knew the facts, their hesitation towards vaccination would just go away. Uh, so our answer was just more education. Uh, now, uh, you know, recent uh, social studies are telling us that this approach is not only patronizing, it's actually wrong. Uh, you know, at the root of vaccine skepticism are deeply rooted sort of gut feelings, uh, moral intuitions, you can call them. Um, and it's very, very hard to override them with facts and data. Uh, you know, there are many reasons why people are skeptical of vaccines. I'm sure you've seen many of them yourself. Some, some people see it as an intrusion to their individual rights and personal liberties. Others care a lot about the purity, quote-unquote, of their bodies and their minds, disapprove of things they consider impure or natural, you know, either for religious reasons or secular ones, like people who you know, worry about toxins in the foods and the environment. Um, there are many people who suspect um, or suspect, uh, you know, suspicious of the unparalleled speed at which the COVID vaccines were deployed. Uh, and they believe that um, that means that they haven't been tested thoroughly. Uh, you know, I recently posted an article on LinkedIn about Pfizer's extraordinary effort to develop the COVID vaccine in record time. There was an academic from Latin America uh, who commented, and I quote here, we doubt anything that is compressed. It's like a baby from a four-month pregnancy, end quote. And that was, that was not some kind of a random uninformed citizen without a background in science. That was actually a university professor of aeronautical engineering, of all things. I mean, you know, 
who's very filled in a way is about breaking speed limits, making things faster. So um, a- another major problem uh, that is fueled by political motives is conspiratorial thinking. You know, conspiracy theories can be comforting, a way to get get one's bearings during times of um, uh, of rapid change in the culture or the economy. Uh, and they bring order and hope in a world that sometimes seems chaotic. I've actually seen this firsthand, I've experienced this firsthand with some people I know uh, whose lives began to unravel and spiral out of control. And they, they just needed something simple to believe in and hold on to. Uh, so while we should never give up on education and Eleftheria, um, I believe we should also we, we, we must also address the underlying root causes of social injustice, inequity, and ineffective government. Do you think that we are in a new path for clinical trials? Do you think that this effort can actually be leveraged in other diseases? What do you think that we have learned through the COVID-19 experience? Oh, there are many lessons. Uh, we don't have enough time to go through them all, but uh, yes, absolutely, for sure. Uh, to me, the biggest lesson that COVID has taught us is that focus, patient-centricity, and out-of-the-box thinking can pay really big dividends, and that you know, ossified processes and, and self-imposed obstacles can be overcome if an entire organization, in fact, an entire industry, is aligned behind an urgent shared cause. Uh, the real question to me is whether this success can be replicated. Um, it took a literally extraordinary, almost singular focus to get the COVID vaccine out the door as quickly as possible. And it's not at all clear that this approach is sustainable in the absence of a, such, such an overwhelming you know, global imperative. Uh, there have been many other learnings as well, as I said before, uh, particularly about the transformational role of digital technology. Um, uh, but the biggest one was just what I just mentioned. Nothing is beyond reach if we're willing to challenge our own assumptions. That's actually true. <laughs> Computational approaches to drug discovery have been employed for over three decades. And such tools, especially as they get more sophisticated and more efficient, could be invaluable both to the academic and to the biopharma research communities to accelerate drug discovery and development. From your experience and your expertise, do you think it is advisable and inevitable that the field of computational drug design will adopt an open approach towards the collection, curation, and sharing of data and code to enable this? Um, um, listen, it, it, it is true that the more data one has, the more predictable computational models become. And that's pretty much true, regardless of the property of the process that you model. Uh, and we have already seen a number of very encouraging data sharing initiatives in the life sciences. And I assume, I assume, Eleftheria, you're talking about the industry specific groups in academia. This is very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there have been a lot of encouraging data sharing initiatives in the life scientists, uh, like IMI's, the Innovative Medicines uh, Initiative, um, uh, ETOX project, uh, which involved the, you know, the creation of a shared curated database by pulling together preclinical safety data and reports from, I don't know, 12 or 13 pharmaceutical companies um, that could then be used to enable early assessment of the potential toxicity of, uh, of drug candidates through you know, similarity-based methods or training of predictive models. But I don't see this extending to many other types of data, uh, to be honest, that companies spend billions of dollars generately, generating and, and rightfully consider the crown jewels. Uh, but but, but where, I, where I see more promise, uh, and where there's already quite a bit of activity, is in machine learning approaches that leverage proprietary data from different companies 
without actually pulling it together, without sharing it. Um, uh, these are known as federated learning uh, uh, techniques. Uh, another IMI initiative is called Melody, uh, is a good example of this. So think of it as, as the model, um, for those of you familiar with, with machine learning, or a training algorithm that moves back and forth between different companies, is being trained with different subsets of its company's data behind their firewalls. Uh, in a way that doesn't allow any other company to reverse engineer their, 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 their data and being sort of continuously refined this iterative manner until the model converges. Uh, and I have a more recent example of this. It was published when, last week, maybe a week or two ago. Uh, it's called the Collaborative Profile Kisser Approach by my old friend and colleague, Eric Martin, Eric Martin at Novartis. Uh, I think, again, it was published the same at Cam just recently. Do you think that the role of big data um, will be substantial in the fifth industrial revolution when it happens? Yeah, for, yeah, of course. Uh, it's 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 it, data is central to the <laughs> to, to 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 the fifth industrial revolution, as the steam engine was in the third one. Uh, there's no AI without data. Uh, you most certainly cannot develop conscious machines without it, let alone ethical and humane machines that are supposed to serve mankind, improve the human condition, and and protect our environment, which is what the fifth industrial revolution is all about. Uh, but we also need to focus on the practical problems in front of us. Um, you know, even today, big data is everywhere. You see them everywhere. But it's not always easy to harness it, particularly in a pharmaceutical R&D setting. Uh, and we talked about earlier about these fair principles, you know, making data findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable. But that's not enough. Um, it also needs to be usable and actionable. Um, and this is one of the most common complaints among R&D scientists being unable to find and use the data they need and that they know it exists somewhere. Um, now, I have my own theory as to what that is. And that is um, that uh, it's the lack of a consumer-centric mindset in the life sciences. When, when you see a strong direct-to-consumer incentive, the data, the data you know, finds a way to get organized and use, utilized in remarkably effective ways. Uh, let me give an example. Take 23andMe, for instance, right? whose business model it depends on, on large-scale individual consumer adoption, you know, winning the hearts and minds of your users one by one, person by person. You have to figure out what matters to them. You need solutions and products tailored to them, making their lives better, easier, more convenient. Um, you know, data scientists and software engineers work in the life sciences. Uh, in the life sciences, generally, generally, that's not true for everybody, but they generally don't pay much attention to user experience. They're dealing with a captive audience. Uh, well, let's face it, more often than not, uh, are not given much of a choice, right? So, to realize the full value of the data we generate, we must, I believe, we must democratize its use, make it accessible to everyone, bring it to life through powerful, intuitive, elegant, um, uh, and user tools that are natural and effortless to use, that solve problems important to us, that are exquisitely tailored to our needs and our desires. Um, to paraphrase, paraphrase James Cargill, you know, Bill Clinton's campaign advisor, it's the app, stupid. <laughs> Uh, in the fifth industrial revolution, there will be a lot of innovation coming uh, from biopharmaceutical industry and the academia. What would you think that is your greatest innovation from the past and which will be in the future? Mm, 
great question. Actually, it's a simple one to answer. Um, it's an algorithm I developed, oof, I don't know how many years ago, 20, 25 years ago, called Stochastic Proximity Embedding, or SPE. It's a self-organizing, sorry, I'm going to get a little technical here for the audience. <laughs> uh, it's a self-organizing nonlinear dimensionality with action and manifold learning algorithm. Essentially, it's an algorithm that converts distances to coordinates, uh, a method of generating low-dimensional representations of a set of objects, which are described to their pairwise relations, being distances, similarities, or, or whatever. Uh, it, it's actually one of the most common problems in applied math. It's known as multidimensional scaling or nonlinear mapping. And has countless applications in every field of science. Uh, the, the, the objects could be anything, you know, imaginable. Ancient cities, planetary objects, basins, consumers, documents, images, transistors on a chip, anything really, atoms. Um, and, and the beauty of SPE lies in its simplicity. It's literally 10 lines of code uh, and also in its speed and scalability. It's the only algorithm of its kind that scales linearly with a number of data points and you can apply it to really massive data sets. As for the future, Eleftheria, um, you know, my career has taken me in a different direction now, uh, in some executive leadership, so I doubt it. Uh, I will be able to replicate something as original and creative as that. Uh, my purpose now, my role, my job now is to create a type of environment that um, allows others to explore the limits of their own creativity and have their own moments of brilliance, in ways big and small. And just as my mentors and my managers uh, created such an environment for me. Oh, that that is actually really interesting. Let me ask you a question. Can I can 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 I pause here and and, and um, uh, ask this question back to you? Uh, you're 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 still very young, Elfrida, <laughs> and your best days are clearly ahead of you. I'm, I'm just curious, though, what what do you consider your greatest accomplishments so far? Uh, what are you most proud about? Well, that is a really good question. If I had to think about it, I would say that I reached my proudest moment a few weeks ago. Um, I I have a scientific background. Um, I did my bachelor and master's in molecular base of human disease at the University of Crete in Greece. And while throughout my career and my scientific and research years, I was investigating DNA damage repair in embryonic stem cells, I was working in colon and ovarian cancer in research laboratories worldwide, I felt that I had uh, business acumen and intellectual and commercial skills I would say that I wasn't actually taking advantage of. So I decided to study intellectual property law at Brunel University in London and start a career in technology transfer at the academic sector. The first step of my career trajectory um, had been to move from the academic commercialization to the biotech industry sector. And I think that uh, I actually reached that point a few weeks ago when um, I got accepted and uh, I was offered the business development manager role at Autolush, uh, a biotech um, car T cell and gene therapy company and I will be starting there uh, in a couple of weeks. And I feel that um, this made me feel as I can achieve whatever I want and anyone can achieve their goals if they set the right milestone, the right milestones in between and believe themselves. However, I should say that I'm mostly proud of and get daily joy from the time I spent mentoring startups and individuals that look to transition to business careers as this fulfills the need that I have to give back to the community. As you said, we have had mentors that supported us and we need to do the same as well. 
Eleftheria, that's that's wonderful. You've be justifiably proud, and I, let me tell you, let me repeat what I said before. Uh, your your best days are in front of you. <laughs> Thank you. Speaking about mentors, um, you have received several awards on leadership over the years. What would you say makes you a good leader? Uh, what I'm not sure what makes me. What makes anybody a good leader? Uh, first of all, I be, I believe that good leaders must have a vision. Um, they should know where they're headed. Um, you know, they should be able to see a future that doesn't exist today and also chart a path to get there. Um, good leaders are exceptional recruiters and team builders. Um, they know how to identify great people, assemble cohesive teams, and create an environment where everybody trusts each other, relies on each other, pushes each other to new heights. Uh, and has its other respects. Great leaders lead through innovation, not fear. They bring the best out in other people, uh, in both happy and difficult times. Uh, they have self-confidence, but low ego. They have a grounded sense of self-worth. They're optimistic and have faith that things will get better. They take personal accountability and do not deflect their own responsibilities or lay blame when things don't go as expected. They absorb the socks and shield their teams from problems beyond the control that could demoralize or distract them. Um, they make everybody feel valued and important. They recognize other people's efforts and give credit very liberally. They never embarrass you. Um, they praise in public and criticize in private. They have empathy and care about each other's feelings and well-being. They're honest and genuine. They're loyal and do not abandon you in difficult times or when it serves their own self-interests. But at the same time, they're objective and dispassionate when it comes to business decisions. They act with integrity. They stay calm under pressure. You know, they admit and learn from their mistakes. They never look back. They always look forward. And above all, Eleftheria, they work towards a worthy goal. As I said before, they stand for something bigger than themselves. Yeah, that, that's actually really true. And I can see you doing something bigger than yourself as well. Um, if you could advise yourself, uh, seeing your past, what, what advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, can, I can't think of anything that would have made a difference, to be honest. I, prob I probably wouldn't have listened anyway. Um, besides, an unwise advisor cannot hope to advise wisely. <laughs> um, I think it's time to close this interview and um, it would be nice to hear from you. If you had a perfect setting, what would your favorite place to invite to guests? Who would they be? What would you love to be served? And what would the favorite song uh, be played in the background? Uh, well, I can, I can I can think of many different settings depending on my mood. Um, uh, I, I if if these are not hard constraints, like two people, or if I can if I can pick the number myself, I would I would have a dinner with my 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 beautiful wife at the rooftop in Sandorini, you know, and um, looking overlooking at the caldera, watching the sunset, um, and listening to a song called. Uh, 
a pure morphic thalassan. It's by Mikrotikos, Thomas Mikrotikos. It's based, <clears throat> based on a poem by Nazim Hikmet. And we'd be there, you know, sitting, reflecting on our 40-year journey together, talking about our daughters and contemplating the life ahead of us. and Dr. Dimitris Agrafiotis for this podcast Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence. <laughs>